Welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand, in which I ask what's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time and the history that we are told. Today's show is sponsored by my book, Recovery, which is a good book and you can get it on Amazon. It's pretty cheap at the moment. Check it out. Also, you can get the audio book, which is me talking a book directly into your mind. Get that on Audible. Do get it. It's a good book. It will change the way you think and possibly, hopefully, the way you feel. But now it's time for Under the Skin. Welcome to Under the Skin with Russell Brand. My guest today is Andy Puddicombe and is the co-founder and voice of the Headspace app. In his early 20s, midway through a university degree in sports science, Andy made the unexpected decision to travel to the Himalayas to study meditation instead. It was the beginning of a 10-year journey which took him around the world, culminating with ordination as a Tibetan Buddhist monk in northern India. His transition back to normal life in 2004 saw him training briefly at Moscow State Circus before (laughs) returning to London to complete a degree in circus arts with the Conservatoire of Dance and Drama, whilst drawing up the early plans for what was later to become Headspace. Welcome, Andy, to Under the Skin. Thanks, Russ. Even though Thank Under you. the Skin in this instance is taking place in your studio where you actually... It is. Well, welcome to Headspace. Thank you very much. It's very right. generous of you to... We've never done this before on Under the Skin. We've always recorded it, you know, in various places in London. We're in Los yeah. Angeles now. We're in uh, one of the facilities of Headspace. And it's... Wonderful to be here. The reason I was strongly motivated to meet you was because people kept mentioning Headspace in Under the Skin. Ed Stafford, the uh, survival expert, and I call him the grunge Bear Grylls. Not that I don't love Bear Grylls, the straight standard Bear Grylls vanilla. I love that guy too. But Ed Stafford, he's like the Nirvana version. He loves Headspace. So more and more people were mentioning Headspace to me. And I thought, I'm going to have to... Meet the people that are headspace. Well, thanks for coming in. Uh, and I this, felt by the compelled. Way, this, this place, you, you're very welcome if you're if you're in LA. Um, you're very welcome to come in, even if it's to you know do it with someone else. You're very welcome to come. It's in. lovely to hear your voice. Thank you very much. I will take you. I'll take you up on that. Thank you. I, I, no I, I, that's really very generous no, of you. Now, what has defined headspace thus far? Even though I know it's been a ten year journey, is it seems to me, and I, I use the app myself, that you are making uh, meditation accessible. Yeah. Uh, it's fun. Uh, colloquial hopefully i think you are i love the little animation videos i don't know like what the reference points are for those creatures i don't know quite what they are (laughs) but i like them i love your tone i was talking to someone i'm over here acting at the moment and uh i was talking to another actor on set and he was talking about meditation and challenges that he faces i goes you want to do headspace mate like it's just like a british bloke going all right sit down uh, remember you don't need to shut your eyes yet and uh, just relax it's uh, not complicated remember hopefully you've watched the video if you haven't you might want to watch that now like and i, and I sort of like what I, I feel like part of what i've been trying to do myself is to make not meditation because i'm not qualified to bring it to people but certainly the conversation around spirituality I wanted to make it more accessible. Tell yeah. me how this journey began for you. Uh, the journey into 
Meditation or, or Headspace more specifically? I think initially Headspace. How come you went, I'm going to set up an app and popularize meditation? How have you done this? Yeah, well, it's important to say, so I'm, I'm just, I'm, just a, I'm a co-founder. So the other co-founder, Rich, mm. um, Rich Pearson. So very, very dear friend now. And this was, a, was something that we came up with together. And we've had an amazing team of people. And also I love so much like love and support from people along the way. I think you're when, a grateful person because you're the real deal, aren't you? You're a but, monk. So you're I not ever going to go, monk, I had but... this brilliant idea of Edspace <laughs> and I'm going to smash it. You're obviously a totally humble person because you're tuned <laughs> but, into the limitless. But, but it's also we... the truth as well. No, like, cool. We, we... How did you meet Rich? Yeah, so we, um, I, I left... Um, I say I left um, the the monastery and and decided to start teaching. I was doing one to one in a clinic back in back in London. So this was you know we'll look at the circus thing later. Um, but kind of after the the circus, I was kind of okay. I knew kind of the language that I wanted to use, and I and I knew by then what techniques I I kind of felt would work outside. Why of Why did you even feel compelled to do that, Andy? Why did you think I want to popularize meditation? What was the sense that you had that it was necessary? This is this is more tricky because it wasn't it wasn't like a a plan. Mm. So in the same way, people ask you know why did you go away and become a monk? I felt com- an overwhelming sense that that was what I had to do, and I wasn't able to necessarily put it into to words. And I didn't come up with a a list of pros and cons of of being a monk and not being a monk. In the same way, when I left the monastery, I guess if it's, it's helpful to take a step back. And when I was teaching meditation, so I'd um. Uh, the monastery had asked me to teach at a meditation center in Moscow, and I ended up living there for you know just over four years, four and a half years. And I would see different types of people, and I'd often get expats coming along, and they really wanted to learn meditation, and they really wanted the benefits of meditation, but they didn't necessarily want to adopt a faith. They didn't necessarily want to chat to a guy in robes and to come into this kind of place where there was a lot of ritual and tradition. So that was, I think, the beginning of me thinking like, well, there's this need and what's more important to me is it teaching meditation or is it being a monk and I felt very strongly that teaching meditation was was more useful and that I could present it in a way that I, you know I didn't it didn't matter whether I was wearing a shirt and tie or whether I was um whether I was wearing kind of robes you know so that was the beginning I would say what's the best thing about being a monk <laughs> strange as it may sound not having anything because there's nothing to worry about mm. So you, you freedom, give, yeah, freedom. You give you give away. I mean, which is strange because you're living within four walls and it's very kind of institutionalized in some ways. But within that, there is a you know freedoms from within, and so there is a an inner feeling of of freedom. And there's no you don't have to achieve anything. You don't have to prove anything. You don't have to worry about losing anything. You own nothing. Like there's so there's a real sense of freedom in that. In your case, it was a Tibetan monastery in the Himalayas. Is that correct? So it was. Uh, I started in Himalayas, and then I went to to Burma and trained in a in a Burmese monastery, and then eventually I ended up kind of uh, going back to to Tibetan monastery and doing five years in the Tibetan tradition. Yeah, really. Yeah, and you the relationship with the guru or teacher is kind of a sacred thing, isn't it? Who 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 is your teacher? It is. So um, I think there are there are different types of teachers along the way. You know, so there are more kind of instructor kind of type teachers are uh, they're people who they're the real deal they've they've put in the time and they've done it but they're they're maybe not kind of considered sort of like as a, as a guru or something like that and someone who was incredibly important in my own personal 
kind of journey was uh he's an Irishman called called Donald. And um Donald Donald was a real deal. Like he he was he trained I think he did just over twelve years in, in retreat, in long term retreat. Um where did you encounter him and where had he done them twelve years? So he did twelve years. He was he was on his way to the Himalayas and he stopped off at a, a monastery, a Tibetan monastery in Scotland, which is back in the sixties. It had just opened, it had just started, and the abbot of the monastery persuaded him to stay and do a six month retreat rather than go to India. And he finished the six month retreat and they said, Well look, we're just about to start the first three and a half year retreat. You know, would you and it's the first one in the West that's kind of ever happened. The Tibetans have a this three and a half year retreat. You know, would you like to do it? And I was, yeah, okay, he's a fairly easy kind of going guy. And uh and he was like, Yeah, sure, I'll try it. And so he did that one and then he did another one and then he did another one. And by the time I met him he'd he'd left the monastery. He was never a monk, so he was in that you know, he went through that process, but he, he did it as a lay person. And um, by the time I met him, he was in Moscow, and that was my my main kind of reason for going out to Moscow was to to meet him and train with him. And you he, wanted to meet him. I really wanted to meet How, him. Why did you want to? I just I'd met the the abbot of the monastery in Scotland. I'd gone back there, and um, a friend invited me along. And I remember just seeing the picture of this guy, you know, and it said that he was at the the Moscow kind of center, and there was just. There was something about him which resonated, and I felt really strongly that there was there was something for me to to better understand and learn. And because he'd gone through that journey, he'd come to it as a Westerner. He'd gone through. He'd kind of my understanding of it is is that he'd sort of transcended the 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 tradition. So he was no longer kind of stuck with the words and the concepts and the frameworks. And so he kind of operated outside of that, which allowed him to communicate in a way which just struck a chord, which I'd never really kind of experienced before. Because I'd always been in foreign monasteries where it was, you know, this is how it is and it's like this and always the same language was used. And so he kind of cut through that for me and helped me see it in a a really different way, I think. But somehow you, that's obviously significant as you go on along with your partner and your team to become the founder of Headspace, that a significant mentor for you was someone that didn't use the conventional traditional lexicon but in yeah. fact colloquially taught yeah. taught meditation which is precisely what headspace does now for 20 yeah. million users yeah. so i can see why he would be a significant figure but it also seems significant to me andy that the uh, uh impulse to connect with this guy seemed very intuitive very instinctive what's that about do you think yeah <laughs> yeah i think maybe i'm just kind of rash like I, I tend i tend to kind of move from instinct i would say or you know I, I tend not to over overthink things so whether it was kind of going away and becoming a monk you know that felt like just so intuitively the right thing to do um i did it and in the same when did you do it? what was that i mean you're from bristol in england aren't you you're just yeah. a bloke from bristol in england that's it suddenly you're a monk in the himalayas then you're there's a bit where you're nearly in the circus my mate gareth who produces the show <laughs> says his biography sounds like a lie that you'd make up to impress a I girl know, i do you know yeah i was a monk for a while then i was in the circus then i was an assassin for a couple of weeks <laughs> they removed that part um <laughs> it's like Kevin Keegan. It's like a weird, mad, exotic life. It sounds. It, it does sound bizarre. I think if you if you look at it as a, um, look, there's no way of explaining away the um, monk to circus, monk to clown bit. But mm. um, basically, up until the age of 21, I competed in gymnastics. 
So kind of I had the acrobatic kind of background. I then went to become a monk and for 10 years I did no exercise. And that was something that I really, really missed. So as soon as I had the opportunity, you can't, you can't exercise as a monk. So as soon as I finished being a monk. Why? The, why so you're always meditating all day. That's it. Just sitting around, Honest. sitting around with your eyes closed, <laughs> not doing anything. They're layabouts. Yeah, exactly. So and I was desperate to kind of go back and do, do that. So that was the first thing I did when I stopped being a monk. And so yeah, and so I, you know, I went back to doing acrobatics and stuff, and I transitioned. You do I, come across a bit of extremist, mate. One minute you're in Bristol, <laughs> next minute you're a monk, and I'm going to be in a circus now. It sounds like but that. I suppose there's focus and concentration. One of the things that it seems like you must have, and also as a, as I say, when I listen to you on Headspace, it's interesting to hear you say other stuff. Like is uh, like you must have a good relationship with your inner life. Concentration and focus for an acrobat. Concentration and focus yeah. for a gymnast. Concentration and focus and well, an aspect one might say yeah. of uh, of meditation. So you're you but you pursued the monastic path. Yeah. We briefly spoke upstairs, and like monastic life is determined by uh, structure isn't it you get up at a certain time you eat certain things and evidently you're not allowed to do any bloody exercise (laughs) I now know so how long did you live that life Um, so I I lived it on and off so I started as a as a lay person um, uh, in in northern India and then so I went and became a novice monk Um, so I moved to I moved to Burma um, and then I went and went on to become a, a monk in Tibetan tradition. So it was over a period of, of ten of ten years. Ten years. And these transitions are they yeah. marked by ceremony and commitment? What are these transitions? How are they marked? Some are. Yeah, I think when you become a novice monk, there's a, a ceremony, and I think it becomes a bit more formal as you become a, a fully ordained monk. So it was. Dang. I didn't bring the pictures are upstairs, but um, how different are you going to look? You've got a shaved head now. <laughs> I mean, it's different. Uh, I mean, there's... is it? Did you look? Because when I first met you just then, like I thought, oh yeah, he's a monk. <laughs> like I sort of like you know, people have got a vibe. Like I've tried, like you know, is that because you knew though? Because you knew I used to be. Probably, yeah. Probably there was confirmation bias, but also, <laughs> also there was the sense. I, I um me, my background in addiction, you sense when people of like with drug addicts, they're not present. Like right. even well, whatever type of drug it is, they think mostly their life when they're not taking drugs is just the thing that they have to deal with in order to get back to drugs. Now, with yeah. spiritual meditation people, I, the impact it has on me is it makes me f- vibrate a bit or I don't know. I like okay. It heats me up. I, yeah. Something about it I like. And I remember when I was a little kid, well, not a little kid, I was 20 fucking seven. So when I was 27, <laughs> I met this geezer that was a sort of hardcore Swami, Radhanath yeah. Swami. He's from the Hare Krishna sect, right? And when I met him, it was like it, I got a real buzz off it. It, it was like yeah. I meeting a beautiful woman, actually. It was like yeah. I was like, oh, God, I really want to impress him. I liked <laughs> him a lot. I got all sort of excited and I recognized. And then when you read yeah. Autobiography of a Yogi, yeah. um, like when Yogananda talks about his guru, it's great love, great passion. Yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, if I think, you know, you were talking just now about kind of gurus and stuff, and I'll start off with teacher. If I think about sort of the first time I met who I would consider to be sort of like guru-type sort of status. Is that that uh, Irish geezer, Donald? No, it's not. It's um, it's a, a chap called His Holiness the, the, yeah, His the, holiness. the Kamapa, and um, who escaped from Tibet um, when he was 17 years old. Because of what Chinese occupation? Yeah, and and I met him back in. Uh, there was like quite a serious threat to his life, so I met him um, back. I don't know, late nineteen ninety, something like that. And I remember the f- even I knew nothing about him, and the first time I met him, I I can only only describe that moment as completely limitless in nature. And whether you define limitless by by love, 
by space, by time, there was a feeling of connection which I had never experienced up until that kind of point. And it was without any of the kind of, as I say, the the baggage of association or anything else. I didn't really kind of know much about him. He was 17 year old, you know, 17 years old. So he was like a kid. He was a kid. He could, he was 17, but he could have been 80 or 90 years old. There was a something Whoa. about him which was completely timeless, ageless. And that for me was the beginning of a very different kind of journey into meditation, I would say. What, what, what happened to you there in retrospect? I think, um, I mean, it shattered a lot of kind of illusions I might have had, but it also it was a beginning of, um, sort of i guess a journey of devotion as well and i think devotion is often kind of talked about in in different different ways i'm not talking about a blind devotion but a real sense of something being and it was personified by that person but it wasn't really about that person it was something kind of bigger and yet there was a a direction for that again whether you think of it as devotion or or love or whatever there was it felt like it had a very definite sort of direction and, and purpose so i felt just a connection that i'd never i'd never experienced before inescapably andy we are talking about quite profound ideas profound and powerful energies that somewhat um, supersede uh, the colloquial and secularized world of the headspace app which you know yeah. i i think it is a brilliant brilliant tool but Part of the compromise that's continually made, <clears throat> excuse me, when reaching out to what we would say, you know, what you would call secular people or non-religious yeah. people or people that aren't spiritual, you're continually sort of going, it's just a thing, just to help you relax, just make you more effective at work, <laughs> right? Then how do we fit this together yeah. with the stuff that I'm kind of into, which yeah. is like you meet a seven-year-old kid that's like the golden child <laughs> that's conveying some limitless, infinite wisdom yeah. that makes his personage yeah. irrelevant, like yeah. you'd sense God in someone or, you know, Again, that's a complicated word, but the limitless, to use your term. Yeah. How do we ally that with the needs of headspace? Is it because you yeah. look at them as separate things or what? I, I really don't, actually. I think it's um it's been a, a journey that has just kind of evolved. And um, I feel like I w- to suggest it's gone full circle suggests that something has been achieved. And I don't mean it in that way. I mean, simply I've been on a journey where I started off with one particular kind of language and a way of kind of looking at the world and thinking about things. I found I went through another kind of period where I was using different language and looking at the world in a different kind of way. And then I came back to a situation where I'm using the old language, but to to kind of refer back to that journey. And for me, they're not different. And I personally, I think the danger of kind of having... Um, any kind of labels like normal people or spiritual people, I think that it's defined that the essence is defined by being present. And I, I think as soon as we take on the, the label of being spiritual or non-spiritual, then we've stepped away from the essence that we're trying to kind of describe. So I don't feel like there's a difference. There's definitely... I. You know, we're talking about stuff using different... I wouldn't talk about this kind of in, in the app because I don't feel like it's the most helpful, most relevant thing for the person coming to the app. But as we kind of as we kind of dig a bit deeper, I think, you know, it is relevant to my personal kind of journey. Of course. Um, and all of that informs kind of what has gone into the app. None, nothing in the app is like my own idea. Nothing is kind of been invented by me. It's It's really me just kind of taking you know, other people's wisdom and trying to kind of 
bring it together in a way that feels right for people like us, right, who don't live in a monastery. Of course, yes, there is no, it doesn't in any way undermine or compromise the content of the app to say that someone that's been a monk for 10 years is going to have had different experiences <laughs> than someone who's just picking up their phone and going, oh, I think sure. I want mine 10 minutes where I'm not worrying about my job or whatever it is. You know, that's yeah. obviously distinct. It's obviously something that you've dedicated a great deal of exploration toward. And there's many things I'm fascinated about here, mate, because like when you, we talk about the, uh, the the devotion that is inhered within the guru student system, yeah. when you talk about the discipline and structures that were um, prevalent in your monastic life, it is inescapable that these models have been extricated from Western yeah. life as we yeah. know it. Yeah. So that's a it must be a huge challenge it is and i i you know if in in a perfect kind of um scenario like maybe people and it's look it's interesting people sometimes come into the app and they get to a point where they say actually i really you know where where did you train where did you do retreat? I actually kind of want to go and investigate kind of that a little bit more, you know so the people who kind of follow on and go go down that route and so sometimes I do feel. Like, yes, there is a, a journey that can be delivered through the app, but it's one part of the journey. And maybe at some stage, some people will want to go off and explore that, you know, outside of the app as well. Yes, yes, that it's a, like it's a, a departure point. It's a like, good way of learning meditation. Um, but another one of the things that must be significant, and it's something that we've touched upon already, is the use of of language like the words yeah. don't really like you know we were talking before Andy about how as soon as you start talking about concepts it, it becomes complicated it becomes complicated because we're dealing with something somewhat intangible yeah I, I genuinely feel like the the more the more we talk about meditation the further we move away from the experience so we could just sit here and not say anything for now but at the same time like you gotta say something and so I, I genuinely feel like that there has to be some kind of conversation and there has to be signposts and there has to be guidance there's a there's an old Pali kind of term um and it's Kalana Mitaya which is I believe that's from the Lion King yeah, a, 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 a common um Yes, yeah, so that's Pumba. Yeah. Isn't it, I believe it's the warthog. That's right, the Pali warthog. And um, so I think there's. What does it mean? That it, phrase. It means, it means trusted friend or kind of like trusted guide. And and for me, that's the the role. Like it's it's how to be kind of a, a rather than kind of laying on concepts and saying you should think in a certain way or you should live in a certain way. It's more kind of. Okay, look, I went away and did this thing, and you know, it, I found it really helpful. Uh, maybe I've done a, a little bit more than than some other people, a little bit less than some other people, but I'm really happy to be like a trusted guide and to to use that experience and to try to find a language that yeah. that worked for me. And and I, my hope is that it works for others it as well. It is working. You're definitely doing it really brilliantly. That's the outcome I'm here interviewing Thanks, you. Man. I think is yeah, you've, you. you've cracked it. Now, like the, the one of the great lies of our time, it seems to me, is the idea that that personal liberty is freedom and that personal liberty means that we can be who we want to be. But I'm starting to understand 
that that is not the case, that there is no such thing as a vacuum. There is no such thing as a, a, a uh, sort of an uninfluenced freedom. Yeah. What we have is I think we live in an extremist consumerist culture, that yeah. our time is deeply influenced by ideologies so all pervasive that we can't see them because they are everything. It'd be like yeah. trying to identify individual molecules of oxygen yeah. or whatever. So... Like without opposing structures, without alternative structures, our role in civilization, our role in society becomes to consume. We consume. Mm -hmm. We don't know how to look at the world differently. We consume our politics. We consume our news. We have show business politicians now. So there is a great necessity for spirituality to get a foothold in contemporary life. Technology is going to be part of it. In a way, Headspace is a perfect product are you surprised by the way that it's gone by the place that you found yourself i'm not surprised that people have um warmed to the idea of practicing meditation i think it's um timeless i think it's universal it's been around for thousands of years the need you know people experienced anxiety and sadness and anger back then you know there's in the same way that they do now. I think the the difference, as you say, now that it's almost like there's a bit of a squeeze kind of, and that we're all feeling that squeeze, feeling more overwhelmed by all those things. So I think, yeah, it's, it's perhaps no surprise that more than ever people are looking for, for that. My only concern about it is that in the, the sense of urgency and need that it becomes in people's minds, at least a, a fix Rather, so it's like how how I'm feeling stressed. How do I fix that? I'm not mm. sleeping. How do I fix that? Rather than okay, how do I understand my life or my mind in relationship to stress or in relationship to sleep? And that meditation is about understanding. It's not about fixing something or changing something. So I feel like that's a very delicate kind of dance and balance that we're all kind of engaged in. It's like how how to on the one hand offer people the aspirin because they have a headache and we should treat you know the headache and at the same time say well, it's not about treat treating the the symptom it's about looking at and understanding the underlying cause is it does it have the potential to be extremely dangerous and revolutionary some of these ideas in that it seems to me that the natural end point is a kind of throwing off the shackles of our contemporary way of life beyond even the external structures and perhaps more importantly the internal structures that make us victim to those external ones if, I, if people start to say well there's more to life than consuming there's more to life than what i do for yeah. a job what happens if communities start forming around different <laughs> ideas what happens then yeah i mean i think that's a really interesting idea you know i think that's quite an exciting idea and i don't think it's the difference is i don't think it has to be this or that you know, I don't think it has to be so kind of extreme. I I personally feel like it's quite possible to to live in the world with the world as it is, but to at the same time to do that with a sense of awareness and compassion. And, you know, that means that we're taking responsibility for living the way that we choose to live. And perhaps as a result, there are some ripples from that, hopefully, that other people around us kind of benefit from. And maybe even some of those people might kind of think, hmm, you know what, maybe I'll do a little bit of that. So rather than it being sort of coercive in nature or or any kind of sense of pushing, it's more just taking responsibility for one's own sanity and uh, health and relationships and then kind of seeing what happens as a a result. I think you're quite right uh, uh, about that because I was thinking just as you spoke that we are different men, you and I, and that a monk by nature is 
it seems that that journey is about that there is some distinction some discretion some separation monastery i think about that sometimes when i was young when i met that that man as a matter of fact i said do you think i should become a monk yeah did you think he laughed at me when i said (laughs) it he laughed at the idea and this that was then you know and but like i sometimes wish that i were i sometimes wish that there were robes that denoted what my position is in the world that i don't believe in this this is not who i am and i don't want to talk about those things you know but like i but 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 because i am a person that has found flesh very very appealing and corrupting i've found drugs very very engaging i like senses i like sensuality i like the body so i've had to come to meditation yoga spirituality with a gun to my head you know pretty much well it's it's, it's worth saying one i've not always been a monk um so there were 20 acrobat for a bit 21 lunatic biography (laughs) 21 years when i wasn't a monk and and look and i haven't been a monk now for for 12 years and um you know i i have a i have a wife and and i have kids and so it's it's in the same it might it might be different but in the same way it's not that i'm i'm unaffected by those things you know i was drawn uh to my wife because she was beautiful and i found her beautiful and so i don't know if that's what you're kind of talking about but i well in the i suppose it seems that you are a, when you answered that question about like me saying because what I see when people talk about spirituality, I believe it that like you know a, a connection to yeah. uh, you know like the sort of even take it whether it's at the extreme end of being in a monastery somewhere in Tibet or listening to a Headspace app. We're talking about a truthful and authentic relationship with yeah. the self in inverted commas that brings about peace. Now for me, there's a deep truth in that, and the more people that have access to that deep truth, it's likely that that would have limitless repercussions and would bring about a lot of change. And I feel that you're, I agree with you, Andy, that we can't start sort of like waving flags and bashing down doors and there's mm. nothing more ridiculous than when you read of conflict in Buddhist countries and you feel like, what's going well, on? Right. You've missed the point. But I suppose any religion, really. Any religion. It's like, well, you've, you've, you've missed the point. Yeah. You know, um, but... Yeah. <sighs> I wonder about expansionism. I wonder about yeah. evangelicism because I feel that there are ideas that are need to be that need to be spread. I don't yeah. think within the limited conversation of contemporary politics a solution will be found. Mm-hmm. I think that they're just permutations and versions of each other. Yeah. I think most people think that. I think yeah. we're experiencing a time of grotesqueness, of uh, of nostalgia, ethno nationalism, old ideas, this weird twitching, flinching dinosaur corpse thing with a wig on. And it's like a peculiar time. And I feel that precisely the solution is to get in touch with essence, essence, as you described it, Andy. And and I feel that, you know, like, you know, you are doing this thing that means that 20 million people are meditating now. And it's really it's you that's doing it. And it's good that it's good and apposite and perfect and necessary that, that you are a man that lived as a monk for 10 years and now lives a lay person life because that means that there is authenticity because if it was me doing it it'd be like hang on a minute let's get an app together for meditation the time is right you know like you're doing it but there's a few people out there doing it i bet there are (laughs) i I, I bet there are but like this is authentic and truthful and in spite of the fact that there's like comfortable animation and it's well put together and it's you know when i when you showed me that room that you do the broadcasting i thought oh that is like a chapel you know it's silent it's dark it's sacred yeah and 
and and and I I think like any any place, it's not defined by how it it looks. You know, it's look, it's a recording studio. But I think the the feeling kind of in there is, um, I I just think it's the same as anything, right? Like if we if we go to work in a particular kind of space, every space has its own kind of feeling, and we don't even have to be into that sort of stuff. You know, that kind of language or vocabulary to even experience that. We go to one place. And we experience one kind of feeling. We go to another place, it's a different kind of feeling. Mm. Maybe we walk into a room with one person, they're angry. We don't even talk to them, but we know that they're angry. There's a feeling kind of in the room. So this kind of stuff exists, even if we just talk about it in in that sort of way. Mm. So I think that's what's interesting, that we don't necessarily have to go out there and talk about it. We can, and I think it's exciting, and it's good that some people do, especially within some kind of realms. But specific to meditation, I feel like if each and every one of us takes on that responsibility to to simply to practice, then over time that has an exponential kind of effect because the the feeling is such that it, it starts to impact the lives of the people around us. You're right. I think I spoke to David Lynch once about meditation and about potentially having confrontations with people on air, like going on TV shows and thinking, oh, I'm going to have to advocate for meditation. And he says, well, there's no point in doing that, really. Just tell them, learn to meditate. And it will change. It will change. It's a practice. It's something yeah. that alters your consciousness. Suddenly I become aware that yesterday again when I was on that TV set, I was talking to kids that are like, I guess, 19 years old, these beautiful young men. And I'm struck by how bright and brilliant and ready and different they seem. And I wonder if this is some perennial quality of youth yeah. or if young people are changing now, if people are ready, yeah. if there can be some impersonal quality to that uh, God, man, Buddha, kid you yeah. met, then perhaps there are sort of meteorological spirits travelling through us. I think there's, there's a change, right? There is a shift. Feels I, like I, it. I do think, um, and definitely, you know, we, we work a lot with, with you know, uh, kids and teenagers with, you know, learning meditation. And, and I, I do feel like... Do you? Yeah, what do you mean by that? You work a lot with so, kids. So going into, um, going into schools, developing programs for specifically sort of some meditation for children. It's, it's in-app for them to do with their, their parents or we've, we've done, you know, work in, in schools as well um, with the intention that it becomes part of the school kind of curriculum. And, mm. and my feeling is that they have watched and learn kind of from our experiences and they want something different. Yeah. And there's, there's a real kind of readiness. And as you say, like a, a passion about that. And, and I feel like as much as people kind of give kids a really kind of tough time, I actually feel they're, they're coming through. Yes. They're challenged by all the distractions of digital and everything else, but I actually feel like they're more altruistic in nature, more socially minded than I've seen in, mm. A long time, certainly our generation. And now, an advertisement break. Support for today's show comes from HelloFresh. Whether you're a meat lover or a vegetarian like me, a busy parent or aspiring cook, HelloFresh have recipes for every taste. Pick a box that works for you and choose exciting new recipes to cook each week. HelloFresh source all the ingredients you'll need and deliver them pre-measured in an insulated box along with simple step-by-step recipe cards. Plus, with brand new preferences added to their classic box, including gluten-free, dairy-free and vegetarian, you can enjoy a choice from a menu that's 
suits everyone's taste. Better yet, their family-friendly recipes have been created with busy parents in mind, taking the hassle out of meal planning, prep and cooking, so you can spend more time simply enjoying your meals. Imagine that, it's you, enjoying a meal. Their new Rapid Box has everything in it you need to cook deliciously simple recipes in no longer than 20 minutes. Rest easy knowing you can skip, pause or cancel your subscription at any time. And all their recipes are created, tested and reworked by a professionally trained team of in-house chefs. What do you think? They just get people in off the street who have not been trained. No, these are proper chefs that have created it. Deliciousness is a guarantee. And now, under the skin listeners, can try HelloFresh with 50% off your first two boxes by visiting hellofresh.co.uk and using the code SKIN. That's S-K-I-N. That's skin at hellofresh.co.uk for 50% off your first two HelloFresh boxes. And now it's back to Under the Skin. Does meditation work for you, right? You've, we mentioned that you're a married man, you've got kids, you've yeah. been through like sort of pretty, you've had quite a difficult life and you've lost a lot of people that you've loved. Like yeah, I don't know if it's more difficult than anyone else's life, but definitely there were some there are some key things that have happened that have influenced my own journey. Does it work? You know, the spiritual life, does it work? Is it effective when it comes to the crunch, when the pain comes, when the divorce comes, when people die, when people leave you, when you lose yeah. control of life and its circumstances? Do you say to people, this works, this way of life? Can you can you just what do you mean by work? Does it help with pain and misery okay. and sadness and despair and loneliness and agony and anguish? <laughs> <laughs> you know, normal life. <laughs> <laughs> My wife's listening. Um, no, look, I think it, um... <laughs> yeah, I'm not equating your wife with those words. I just mean that myself. I know like, what you mean. I'll tell you why. It's because the question that Gareth's written, actually, is normally yeah. Gareth's here doing these things right. with me. I'm not so generous as you where you go, oh, like Rich, he's set up with okay. me. I just take the credit. That's my, that's my function <laughs> in life is to take credit. But like one of the questions he sort of pointed out, he goes, he's seen like that me, my way of dealing with life was I'm going to take a lot of drugs. Yeah, I'm okay. going to do what's you know i'm going to do external things i'm going to yeah. get involved in the material world whereas evidently what you did is you went i'm gonna find another way another and, path and and i did and i think i think it's so circumstantial i look in another in another town in an, with another set of friends you know i just think it was so for all of us it's so specific to that time and that place and that environment um Yes, kind of. I'd had meditation in my background, you know, like I'd grown up kind of doing it and stuff with my mum, and so that was that was there in the background. But definitely to begin with, I think you know my immediate reaction was one to go to the pub with everyone else, mm. you know, and then kind of I probably spent a few years of doing that and not really seeing a shift in in how I felt, you know. So I went away and I became a student and did all the things that students do, and it was great fun. But I never felt that I had any kind of liberation beyond the the sense of you know temporary freedom that I might have had for a few hours on 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 a night time. The next day, you know, you wake up, and so I never felt that deep sense of fulfilment that I felt it was didn't possible work straight away. Because yeah. I felt that, and then I went, "Oh, you better do it <laughs> all of the time to stop this <laughs> moment of reflection ever happening." <laughs> Well, mine was maybe less extreme. <laughs> Just kill that moment <laughs> of reflection. <laughs> yeah. That guy has got to go. <laughs> Yeah, maybe I was, I don't know. Do you get angry still? Do you get angry? Of course. What happens? What do you do if you feel angry? Um, I mean, I 
I tend not to run around kind of ranting and raving at people. I don't think it, it manifests like that. But, you know, I have a, a three-and-a-half-year-old son and an eight-month-old baby, and we don't sleep very much in the house. So it's kind of inevitable at some stage that, that anger kind of comes up. And as much as, as possible, it's, it's trying to bring the, the practice to life, which is to, is to witness it and not, not to become the anger, but to, to notice that anger is, is kind of present. And sometimes I miss it. And, you know, as in, I, I don't see it straight away. And so I'm already kind of on my son going, why did you just do that? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's anger. Okay. Sometimes you might want to jump on one of those passing cars and... But just remember, we're at, the, we're at the side of the road. Right, yeah, yeah, because that's, that's what, like, thinking about it when we came, like, here, me and my wife, we were, like, the first couple of nights, the baby's jet-lagged, we're jet-lagged. And I still can remember oh. it being, like, four or five o'clock in the morning, just yeah. going, this is, look, we're going to have to do something because this depression, I think, uh, this is wrong. Life's not meant to be like And my wife went, no, look, you're, we're jet-lagged. Yeah. Like, because uh, me, I think, I attach very quickly to yeah. phenomena and states of mind. So that's, I need meditation. To, I need to be able to go, oh, okay, this is just, you are not this feeling of anger. You yeah. are not this fear. You, the fear will pass and yeah. you will be present. Now, like, I still feel like, even though it's 15 years since I've taken drugs or drunk, I still feel like I'm subject to fear in a very powerful way. Like, I yeah. can be hit with fear that demands activity. It's like, yeah. I've got to have to do something. I'm feeling this feeling. Right, okay. smash everything up, run. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like, so it's very hard to just go, okay, just breathe in. So, but you're saying, because, like, the, medita the meditative practice that you have, and of course, yours is a very particular and um, thorough version actually is applicable in situations where the three and a half year olds kicking off or the yeah. missus is kicking yeah i i actually think that any meditation practice which isn't applicable to daily life uh, yeah i kind of I wonder point? what's the point a little bit because i don't think any of us you know right it's not applicable in daily life but <laughs> well, fuck <laughs> it then. exactly so pe people sit for 10 minutes and do the meditate. What about the other 23 hours and 50 minutes in the day? Mm. So I feel like there has to be a way of, of bringing that. I just see it as that if we can remove ourselves from the, the madness of our lives for long enough to get familiar with what it means to be present, what it means to be open and curious and loving, compassionate, then we can start to bring those qualities back into our everyday life. And it's a, an ongoing kind of training. And, and I, I love that back and forth. You know, where, you know, you notice, oh, wow, actually, yeah, that still kind of happens. Okay, you go back to your meditation and, and over time that kind of, it strengthens where meditation is no longer separate from your life. Mm. Meditation is simply a time within your life or within your day when you pause and close your eyes. <sighs> that makes sense, this thing I've been thinking about lately, like the relationship between the word whole and the word holy, that mm. there is a sort of becomes an identifiable wholeness to your life, meaning that if I'm out on my own, and I feel like an attractive person pays me attention. Yeah. I don't think, oh, brilliant, I'm just this guy now. I go, no, no, yeah. no, I'm the guy that's got the wife and the child. You are right. always that. You are a complete person. Yeah. You don't compartmentalise yourself off into, me. oh, in this corner of my life, I get right. away with this. This is the corner of yeah. my life where I do that. No, it is one thing. There yeah. is one thing. There are completeness. And you think that meditation creates some sort of connection, some foundation, some essence. Yeah, no no question, you know, we were we were chatting about this. Um, you met Ash, you know, just before we came in, old old buddy, yeah, he's someone old, you old buddy with. of mine. I yeah. like him. Someone who, he's a lovely, lovely guy, and you know, we grew up together, and and we were just chatting, kind of about 
this idea of um, connection. And, and he was saying, kind of, when did you first kind of really feel that, you know? And and I I still I still remember kind of being in in the monastery and and something kind of just melting away where I no longer felt that extreme sense of self. Like a sense, and and again, I'm not suggesting for a moment that you know enlightenment or anything like this, but just a a, a glimpse, perhaps, of mm. of what it meant not to feel kind of isolated or separate from the world, mm. and and in that, in that moment, there wasn't there wasn't a person to be separate from everything. There was only whole, and there wasn't even anyone there to to experience and to think about it. Is this the whole or is it not? There's simply that was all that existed oh wicked and and i i feel like that was uh look it's it's just an experience and those come and go and it all depends on how stable those experiences are and how much kind of they become a part of our lives for me it was quite temporary but i do feel like there was there was something kind of in that which really spoke to a different way of viewing the the world you see buddha and jesus and that kid you that 17 year old <laughs> god man you met them cats do you think they're living there you think that they're in that state all the time look it, it seems to be you know it, it there was um there's one one other if i if i if i can so there was another monastery that i went to to visit so there are this there's this a, You're like on a monastery crawl. There's, 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 <laughs> pretty much. But <laughs> a monastery, a monastery. Oh, let me in. I want to transcend. You've had enough transcendence. Get out. Go back to your wife. Mon- I haven't got a wife. Monastery golf. It was, um, there was, um, there, there's a kind of an elite troop of kind of meditators, right? So they, um, within this tradition, they get um, picked Which out. Which tradition? Uh, so it's the, the, the Kaju school. Um, of, so there are four main ones in Tibet. Um, Kaju is one of the four. What's Dalai Lama? He's a uh, Gelugpa. Mm. Um, and he's, he's very well known, obviously, because of his just transcendent wisdom and compassion. But he's also he was also the head of government for a long time. And sort of, although he's not the head of all four schools, he's kind of he's probably better known in the West than anyone else. Mm. And in this monastery, um, they, they, they pull the kids out pretty young. And obviously the kids have to want to do it. They have to, and they have to show a, a real kind of, um, what's the word? Like a, a lot of uh, potential in meditation. Mm. The families have to be on board as well. And, yeah. and they're picked out. And from about the age of 10 or 11, they're in strict retreat. They never go outside. They never see anyone, speak to anyone or anything. And we were invited to this monastery, and it's very, very rare to meet anyone from that thing. And the, the guy who ran it was he lived above the monastery. And I was with this chap, Donald, and I think because I was with this chap, Donald, we were invited to go and see him. And going into that room, I went in there, there were four of us that went in. Again, that that is someone I would say who was absolutely living that sense of wholeness in I don't believe there was an ounce of separation kind of left in him. He was there, but he wasn't there. Like it was, there was nothing but a presence of, again, awareness, compassion, openness, love, whatever you want to kind of call it or define it. There was, there was someone there, but there was nobody there. Yeah. And I felt like he was, he had completely transcended self. So that, that was his existence. It's like the realization that your biographical, identity 
and your primary, your sort of primal motivations, your lust, your jealousy, fear, or even personal love, are temporal interpretations. And if your identification with the interpreter, the witness, the experiencer becomes your base, your essence, then there is freedom. Because curiously, to, to colloquialise it again, after I met that geezer Radnath Swami, and I went to my <laughs> mate, like, I met this geezer. It's really, it was weird, right? And I goes, I couldn't imagine there's anything you could say to him that yeah. would knock him off his thing. Like, yeah. like, like, and my mate went like, yeah, what if you went, mate, there's some skinheads fucking up your car. He went, what? Oh, no. Like, wouldn't, like, there's nothing you could say. Or like, I think, do you want to be in our band? He wouldn't go, oh, yeah, all right. You know, like, you're, there's nothing. There is nothing yeah. to get. There is nothing to lose. Yeah. Hmm. So it's, yeah, I'm really into it. The other thing is, um, though, with Amma, the hugging mm-hmm. saint, who I also feel like she emanates great wisdom and, and her followers think that you know they're very in like that hindu as you know better than me like they're yeah. much more idolatry based so yeah. they're saying this Definitely. woman is an incarnation of kali or some you know they're saying yeah. she's god yeah now like i was watching her and she's amazing and powerful and visibly going into transcendent states and stuff like that but there was this night right it was new year's eve and there was like yeah. ten thousand of her followers hanging out and like you know sort of this big party and chanting it was cool and She's up, you know, enthroned and stuff. There was a bit where someone, a musician, like, messed up something or whatever, and she just went, oh, sort that thing out. Like, in whatever yeah. southern Indian <laughs> language she speaks, she went, yeah. sort that thing out. And I thought, oh, she's still yeah. interacting with the material yeah. world. This is why I wonder, you know, sort of saying Christianity, and Christ says, like, you know, in the world, but not of it. Yeah. Do you, what do you feel, uh, Andy, about perennialism? What do you feel about identifiable... Uh, truths that appear in many if not all spiritual traditions i well so again i think that the more that we the more that we rely on words and concepts the further we move away from truth so the the challenge always i think with these great teachers is that there's always an essence there and there's you know i it's often talked about as sort of mystical schools but I just think there's an essence and the essence is to be is awareness and compassion for what I can't find other other words, but that it's called by many names. But, you know, for the for the sake of this, let's call it call it that. I feel like that's at the heart of, of every every lineage, every tradition, every faith, every tradition. And I just feel that the further it kind of moves outwards and as it moves out into society, the less and less it has to do with the essence and the more and more it has to do with a structure Uh. often a structure reliant on you know the power and government and all kinds of other kind of factors that start to play into it so all of a sudden like the essence is lost and so people are doing things and going through the motions of things and not even really kind of necessarily knowing what they're doing or why they're doing or even having the benefit of experiencing the essence of that kind of practice so and that's obviously kind of very general and broad and it's not true in every case but i i see it a lot um mm. and i've i saw it in asian countries as well like often there's this, you know oh in the west we're like this in the east i mean i saw that in just as much in asian countries as i did in in the west and even in your monastic experience we you said you know there's get up at this time eat this yeah so um but when we discussed it before it was more like look let's eliminate as much as possible all the ephemera yeah. of everyday affairs so you can focus yeah. on awareness and compassion, cultivating these qualities. Yeah. But that itself is a form of structure. But it is 
in evidence that it, we go from Christ, the idea of Christ of like, you know, abandon your possessions and follow me. Don't get caught up in material world. Love yeah. is everything. Don't judge nobody to, right, I'm going to need cathedrals. Yeah. <laughs> like it's a sort of, it becomes materialized, institutionalized. Exactly. And that is not about this essence, is it? No. And that's what I, that's what really moved me. And look, it's, it's, it's absolutely the same in, in all mystical schools, whether it's Christianity or, or Sufism of Islam. Like you can find it in many, in all the great traditions, but it, what really um, inspired me, you know, were the, the great yogis of, of Tibet. You know, they, they eschewed all that stuff. They didn't want anything to do with any kind of, not even the monasteries. They would just go to a cave in the mountains and they'd brick it up and they'd, <laughs> and they'd have a little hole in one corner where they passed their waste out of. They'd have a little hole in the other corner where someone would come along every now and again and put some food inside and they would live their lives there. And it was... It was free from all that kind of other stuff. And whilst on the one hand, it's it's not very <laughs> kind of practical, I think on the other hand, it created an environment where the focus and the intention was on the essence and the cultivation of the essence and the continuance of the essence through the ages rather than trying to create these great establishments that maybe kind of didn't necessarily kind of have the focus and intention on the on the essence no they're social structures and social structures tend to the magnetism seems to be towards power we talked before about sort of polarity and concepts such as positive and negative and even these you assure even (laughs) these well i think from a meditation point of view they're they're really challenging so most of us will have a relationship with the mind where we kind of or with thoughts where we see some thoughts as positive and we see some thoughts as negative. Mm. So in doing that, we've already created a framework for tension and stress. Yeah. If you know, if positive thoughts come up, we want to hold on to them or we want to chase after them. And if they look like they're going away, we get a little bit kind of nervous. Um, or we desire them so much that we chase after them. So we're caught up in that. If a negative thought comes up, we don't like it. We Maybe we experience fear mm. um, or we're very resistant to it. So we're then kind of pushing against the thought. But when we, and you'll know, you know, I'm sure you know this from your own meditation, when you, when you step back just a little bit, you know, a thought is a thought. And if we don't engage with it, if we're able to kind of maintain that place, that seat of awareness, where we simply witness a thought coming and going, it's a thought. It's neither good nor bad. It only becomes good or bad once we start to think about it in a certain way and once we start to have a relationship with it and to engage with it and to create a storyline around it. Then it becomes problematic. But a thought in and of itself is neither is neither positive or, or negative. In a way, thought is the first layer of the material world. It's an object. Yeah. I, mm. I, yeah, I think that's... Um, I mean, there's a lot of different ways of, of looking at it, but I, I feel like that's the first... The first... Uh, normally, the first place where we kind of get a bit caught up and where we start to experience suffering and, and stress in our life because even though like i've been meditating seven years transcendental meditation i've been listening to headspace and like you know i'm listening to the beginner's bit right because mm. it's free i don't know why it's sort of so hard to put a credit card number into something like, oh god <laughs> no it feels like a real commitment <clears throat> but like uh, but like sort of so but even though like when i'm listening to them 10 minute ones i'm like bloody well this is for proper beginners like like, like i'd recommend to mates of mine who are out like sort of doing driveways and that go look listen to this this will yeah. help you with your meditation but me i've been meditating all this time and i still like you know going right you probably maybe you've wandered off now just return back to the awareness of the rising and falling but i'm bloody hell i am just sat here <laughs> thinking again yeah you know it's sort of like it's astonishing this habit of the mind yeah 
it's incredible, right? It's so ingrained and you know, it's there's there's this um sometimes this idea that, you know, your friends will say, Oh or people who meditate will say, Oh yeah, you went away and you did it for kind of so long so long. Well kind of so what in a way. It does doesn't mean that I no longer experience distraction of the mind. I think it, it is a practice and I, I really believe that none of us really kind of master this stuff. Maybe the odd few people like, you know, the people we've been chatting about today, mm. but I, I feel like it is a, it's a lifelong practice. It's a journey for life. And we're all students. We are always a student. And if we ever lose that sense of not being a student, then we've lost that sense of freshness and curiosity and openness and beginner's mind, which I feel is so important in meditation. If we're not turning up with that, then it's just a routine. We're just kind of going through the motions. When you were saying that thing about little kids being, you know, taken off like they're maybe seven <clears throat> years old, they're 11 years old, it just seems extraordinary as a person that's grown up in the culture that I have that that would even be an option. But I suppose, right. you know, you yeah. think about it with football, you'd take off a six-year-old yeah, and they'd true. go off in some football academy. But the idea that you would, a, an 11-year-old would be capable of that. Yeah. And it shows you how much cultural experience is informing yeah. the world. Notable too, I think, Andy, that, Fear and desire, the constant triggers to action are so prevalent culturally that the news is promoting fear, that commerce runs on desire, that these animalistic states are perpetuated, that we need uh, uh, an alternative, if not oppositional, force and ideology because the, 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 the magnetism is powerful. The magnetism of the alternative is powerful. Yeah, I guess it, it depends how we, and I get, again, different viewpoints on it, but how we approach that. So if there's one idea, do we try and, do we try, I think very often you'll see one idea, and you see this in, like in American politics right now, like there's one idea presented and then the other side, they just shout a little bit kind of louder and then this side shouts louder and then this side till eventually they're kind of, you know, there's, there's so much kind of conflict. And I guess there's a, there are different ways of coming at it and and arguably the way of creating that alternative kind of route is rather than by trying to overthrow that in a kind of a, a physical or energetic kind of way, more kind of not engaging perhaps and creating an environment where that can't exist. Like Because if all of us are, are living an open, present, compassionate kind of life, no one's going to vote for that. Yes. You know, so we, we enable, you know, I feel like the society enables that behavior. It doesn't necessarily, it's not necessary. we're not necessarily slaves to it. We are kind of part of that. And each and every one of us has a responsibility to sort of, you know, to, to be more present perhaps and not engage in it. I think that's beautiful. I've heard that idea from various different sources, even like quite you know anarchists and quite right. political people right. and people that are sort of progressive uh syndicalists like the ideas of setting up societies that are independent okay. saying that don't engage in oppositionism simply establish alternatives establish yeah. alternatives and live in it and when i think about them two boys that i was talking to yesterday were young men yeah like i think yeah they're not going to want to like if you give them like right here is a system here is an alternative yeah. system like the where we can live in the world, and we admit that you know this is a, a world with material in it, with consuming in it, with where we are human and we're frail and we're flawed. Yeah. It doesn't. We don't have to live in the extremist state that we're currently being yeah. offered. And I think we even see that inside our own mind, right? That the we almost fan the flames when we provide a lot of opposition or a lot of conflict. Like it doesn't. 
it keeps the thing alive. Mm. You know, so I, I worry sometimes that if the more we kind of push in one direction, actually, the more sort of tension we create kind of coming back towards us it's a bit like aikido or something you know you know if the if, it's, if the force is coming towards you rather than push against it just move to the side let it go past you know there's something interesting in that kind of movement yeah it feels like we plug into it i think about bumper cars quite often that like you know that we're these vehicles that have an aerial and it goes into the grid of negativity and anger and if we just sort of yeah. unplug from yeah. that then you're not being yeah. sourced by it in the same way and i do think we can live in the world but choose not to be a part of that kind of thinking. I agree. Can I run through some of these questions that Gareth done just so we make sure uh, (laughs) that everything's covered? Uh, Are you still in touch with teachers in Tibet, like your guru and that, and who is your guru, and do you still study with them? Uh, I'm very much still in touch with them. I, you know, we were chatting just beforehand. I, I showed you a picture of. Uh, it was really nice. I had uh, uh, one of the the abbots from the Tibetan monasteries, um, my old retreat master. He came out and visited. Every... What's his name? May I ask? He's, he's La- Lama Yeshi Rinpoche. Oh, cool! He's yeah. got one of them Rinpoche names. He's, yes, which is normally. I'm a... always impressed when I see them on a book. It's quite quite high up. Those those guys, you oh. know, they've they've done their they've done their time. Yeah, and, he ain't playing. Um, he he's not playing. <laughs> Um, and it was amazing actually. I was, I was. They so... proud of you, or they love you? They're happy, or how do you? They seem the really happy, and I was, I was genuinely. That's probably one of the the most magical, special times for me personally. Kind of in the whole Headspace journey is having him come out here. Um, he spent a day with the whole team, kind of um, at our, our our annual retreat, and um, and sort of. Not that it was his stamp of approval, but him coming out here, it kind of felt like, wow, like that that was really kind of meaningful because it, you know, there is always the concern when you're trying to present something that has been so carefully kind of looked after, that's kind of traveled so many centuries, you know, of of messing with it, you know, and it's something I really, I really care about. It's probably the thing I care about most. And so him coming out here and kind of saying, this is this is really kind of good for the world. That meant, yeah, it meant a huge amount. That's beautiful, isn't it? Because that's one of the great challenges is how do we transfer it? Uh, people obviously can't see, but you did it as if you were carrying a baby bird. Yeah, sure. like, <laughs> yeah. or, like, like you've got to carry this thing. It's yeah, going to go in the world. It's precious, you know, and I think it's really easy to lose, again, two and a half thousand years of R&D. Like, What's that, R&D? It's sort of research development kind of, you know... It, mm. it, I feel like it'd be so easy to lose the efficacy and all the time and attention and precision that's gone into that over countless lifetimes. And so I, I don't want to be the person that messes that up, you know. Buddha <laughs> come up with this thing under a tree, then Andy ruined it. <laughs> no, God, what, so is it that, like, what is it that, uh, what is the teaching of Buddha? I know that's quite a big question to come up with at the end. <laughs> Could you just sum that up, please, Andy? No, like, um, like but like, because this is, is it's Buddhism, this headspace. Look, I, I genuinely, even as a Buddhist monk, I didn't um, self-identify as Buddhist. Um, oh, you and were deluded, mate. You were there a... in a monastery, <laughs> wrapped in a blanket. What do you think you was, a hell's angel? Probably that's what you're going to do after the circus. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I just... Don't call it that, it's not helpful. I just think that the whole the whole idea of, of meditation is letting go of, of labels and identity. So it's kind of ironic we would hmm. then kind of take on and adopt the label of, of being a Buddhist or a Hindu or whatever it kind of might be. So I personally didn't find that a terribly helpful way of thinking. Um, definitely, I, I personally 
obviously I practiced those teachings for a very long time. They're very much kind of a part of my life and they absolutely 100% influence kind of the the content um, and are responsible for the content that, that that's in, in the app. But I, I don't think about it as Buddhist. You know, we talked just now about the essence, the essence that is alive in every great tradition and every great culture. I, I feel like it is the delivery of the essence. Yeah. Um. So it's like it's the chocolate without the wrapper. Yes, yes. Because you know? imagine that if Jesus, Muhammad and Buddha met, they wouldn't like have a fight, would they? And go, no, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> They'd go, oh, it's the same thing. <laughs> it's hard to imagine. I quite like to be at that dinner, though. It's, um, yeah. yeah. How would they talk? I mean, I wonder. Yeah, like, uh, but like, yeah. Ultimately, you're right. The labels. People get hung up on the labels. People get hung up on the denominations. But I suppose, like the the, you know, coming from a Hindu tradition, the transformation of yeah. Buddhism was what exactly? That's still a big question, isn't it? But like, what like was it like suffering and desire? Watch out for that crap. Yeah, I, I, a little bit of that. I think mm. that um. The recognizing that, because um, I'm trying to work out, is it what happened to that man under that tree? Yeah, relevant to me now. And it feels like it is. I from think what it's, I know. yeah, because I again, I I think these things are they're timeless. I think they're they're universal, and it's really interesting. You know, you were talking about kind of a, attraction to 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 the flesh and all those kind of things. Even if you read those stories, like it's not like he was there and he was experiencing this perfect mind and there were there were no thoughts of desire or lust or greed or desire. Like all of that stuff was there. He was and, tempted, wasn't he, in all sorts of he, forms and figures. Yeah, and he, come was, at him. he was picturing kind of beautiful naked women. And I don't feel like that's really such a kind of great leap away from where we are. Kind no. of in most of us in in our lives. It's just there was such a kind of a commitment to an intention to see those for what they were, you know, simply as thoughts and not real and not permanent and not tangible. And in, in having that relationship and that perspective with his mind, with his thoughts, there was there was a release and therefore a, a, a permanent, at some stage, a, a complete freedom from the, the, the suffering of kind of our thinking mind. Yes, is there some beautiful, beautiful stories? I felt... Um... Like like I said to you, mate. Like when I like left my wife and uh, daughter, not permanently, but abandoned the family <laughs> just for a minute while I did this at Abbot Kinney and wandered around yeah. here. Uh, like I, on the short walk, I, I felt like the thought occurred: I am already dead. You are already dead. Everything that happens to you is is meaningless now. You're is dead that, already. Is that a thought you get get often? No, no, not really. But I get sort of like I get versions of like I think it exists to. Uh, to mitigate the thought that there's something to acquire, to attain. I'm very much a person that's I'm objective fixated. Yeah. Like I think, oh I, oh, I must do this. I must get that. You know, because yeah. even when you sort of like that, when people talk about enlightenment, because I took a, psychedelics when I was younger, yeah. I recognize it because I've shortcutted it sometimes when you okay. get that feeling of self immolation and the idea of like, oh my God, I'm not real. I remember like I was a 16 year old kid. I took acid with just like lads from, yeah. as it turned out, like Yorkshire, like tripping. And like, uh, and I remember sort of going, oh my God, I'm not a person. I'm not a person. And all, like, I remember yeah. realizing it and feeling it. And like, it's terrifying because yeah. you are, there's, n we don't have any tradition. There's nothing to tell yeah. you that. There's yeah. no one's going, all right, this is just this temporary thing you're going to be yeah, doing yeah, for a brief yeah. while. Yeah. 
You know, so, yeah, those thoughts occur to me and have always occurred to me. And I've always had a, I've found something in me that does make me think that past life or some version of that or interconnected consciousness in some form may be a deal. Because, yeah. like, often things seem familiar. Often right. things seem attractive to me in ways that, uh, you know, like you spoke of your own instinct, your own intuition. Yeah. You decided at some point I'm off here to yeah. go to the Himalayas. Like, what's that? Oh, I'm going to go and study with this guy. Yeah. You know, who is that? Who's that that's speaking? Who yeah. is me? And like Adam Curtis, one of the early guests on this podcast, goes, the problem of our time now is yeah. there's someone in our head, you know, the Pink Floyd lyric, there's someone in my head and yeah. it's not me. There's someone talking inside your own mind and that's yeah. not who you are. So yeah. I've got to do this. I'm going to buy that. I'm going to have a fight. I'm going to have yeah. sex. You know, like it's, yeah. you've become identified, commodified, conditioned, trained to behave in a way that you're now yeah. completely detached from this essence, this essence that you talk about, this awareness and compassion. People yeah. have no relationship with it anymore, don't and know that it's yeah. there and that's that's the interesting thing for me i think the and and i agree the the risk is that we think that it's that it's elsewhere if we think it's not there or not here then we might start to think that it exists elsewhere and and i would contend that actually it is here and it is with each and every one of us all of the time it's never anywhere else. It's just that maybe we don't have a sense of connection with it or we mm. don't have a familiarity with it. And I feel that's the the struggle when a lot of people come to meditation. Rather than kind of allowing sort of the, the clouds of the past to experience the blue sky, there's more of a sense, of, okay, right, I've got to experience blue sky. How do I push all those clouds out of the way and how do I kind of create this space? Like what I think meditation is rather than just allowing a natural process to unfold. So I, I despite, you know... Whatever's going on in the world and whatever people are doing and saying, I think for all of us, or this is something I find really kind of useful, is is knowing that, look, awareness and compassion is still there. For whatever reason, the circumstances, the conditioning, the environment has not necessarily allowed that to shine through, but it is there and it's there in each and every one of us. I really sort of profoundly kind of believe believe that's the case clearly will you can we conclude with some meditation there are other questions but you know they're not as interesting as the idea of us <laughs> they're great questions gareth don't be hurt like they're good like uh like should we can we conclude with a yeah, meditation we, we do a bit yeah of yeah if you'd like to oh nice one yeah couple of minutes good or yeah like, yeah, yeah yeah a couple of minutes great i mean you're the bloody expert I, I'm really not. Well, let me decide. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> end up doing share. coke. <laughs> I, I don't think I don't think that's ever been um ever ever been done in this in this particular room. It won't help us. Okay. So, look, whether it's just us, Russell, or if it's anyone who wants to kind of join in when they're when they're listening to this, yes. you know, just um general bit of advice: just make sure that you're sitting comfortable and you're not going to be disturbed for just a couple of a couple of minutes doesn't matter if there's a bit of noise going on in the background. But just take a moment always when you first sit down, just to, just to ground the body. So just feel the weight of the body against the, the chair or the floor beneath you, soles of the feet on the floor, and the weight of the hands and the arms just resting on the legs. And you can start off with your eyes open, eyes closed, whatever feels kind of more comfortable. But if you have your eyes open, just... Try if you can, rather than to focus on one particular point, just have a nice kind of spacious, relaxed focus that sort of just takes in the entire sort of space around you. So you can't really see any one thing in focus. You just see everything around you. And just maintaining 
that soft focus, just take a couple of big deep breaths. So just breathing in through the nose. And out through the mouth. Just one more time, breathing in through the nose. And out through the mouth. And as you breathe out this time, just gently closing the eyes. And just feeling that weight again. Pressing down. Allow any thoughts to just come and go. The mind's going to continue to think. Don't try to stop any thoughts. Just bring the attention into the body. And just noticing how the body feels. Is there a sense of heaviness or lightness in the body? Does it feel like there's a sense of stillness or restlessness in the body? So not trying to change anything, just noticing the feeling, the sensation. And as you sit there, just starting to notice how the body's breathing. So again, we're not trying to breathe in any special way. Sometimes the breath will be quick, sometimes it's slow, sometimes it's deep, sometimes it's shallow. Just let it do its own thing. And to begin with, just noticing where in the body you feel that movement. Might be the stomach, might be the chest. If you can't feel anything, just gently placing your hand on the stomach, just to feel that movement. Now as you follow the breath, just to help sort of to, to remain focused on that feeling, that sensation, just starting to count the breaths just silently to yourself. So as you feel the rising sensation, you count one. Falling sensation two. And three and four, just up to a count of ten. And just starting again at one. Just try that a couple of times through on your own. So for sure, at some stage, the mind's going to get distracted. As soon as you realize the mind's wandered, just gently acknowledging it, letting the thought go, and then just coming back to the breath. And just for a moment, letting go now of even any focus on the breath. So just letting the mind for a few seconds do whatever it wants to do. 
it wants to think, let it think. Just allowing the mind to be free. And then just gently bringing the attention back into the body. Just coming back to that feeling of contact, of weight. Coming back into the space around you, any sounds, sensations. And then when you're ready, just gently opening the eyes again. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, that was good because it was mad to open my eyes and like you were there. Yeah. <laughs> <I've> been... <laughs> oh, hello. I'm there all the time. I'm there every time. It's like man flip. Get them little cartoon guys in here as well. And that was amazing. Thank you very much. I like the idea that it is always there. The awareness and compassion is always yeah. there, obfuscated only by mental static and external attachment, which can be overcome with the learning of these techniques well done in your incredible work in big team effort, in. Man. yeah really? no yeah big, yeah yeah absolutely effort. no you've been very clear that you work with a, a great many people and that you're part of a lineage in uh yeah in both directions laterally and back through yeah. time hopefully forwards as well yeah hopefully unless it's you that's <laughs> finally ruined buddhism <laughs> i mean there's a good chance we'll, we'll see what happens between you know. us we can destroy all religions <laughs> so there's nothing left but blobs so, of so you material. do the hindu thing i'll do the Buddha, and then I'll, we'll i reckon we'll branch I can, out we'll yeah branch out. i'll do christianity and hinduism <laughs> islam will leave <laughs> let's not get involved with that <laughs> <laughs> all right hey nice one yeah. thanks right it's an honor i mean yeah, thanks so much for having, beautiful. having me on man. thank you thanks for letting pleasure. us record it in your studio um so yeah download headspace learn to meditate free yourself free yourself <laughs> cheers mate thanks man nice one thank you well we hope you enjoyed that episode of under the skin the show was sponsored by my book recovery which is available now on amazon pretty good price at the moment check it out you can also get the audio book on audible finally if you like this show please subscribe and review it in itunes just give it five stars though i'm quite a vulnerable person and anything less than five stars i will be personally affronted by see you soon lots of love bye